while we dream of this extraordinary future, the reality is that uh, this technological revolution seems incapable of solving some of these really intractable problems that we have here on Earth. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey, brought to you by Very. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. All right, welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. My name is Luke Wilhelm, Chief Product Officer of Very. And we're joined today by Jit Bhattacharya, principal at Factor E Ventures, to discuss the process of connecting devices in hard-to-connect places. Jit, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So, Jit, uh, set the scene for us a little bit. What was the... You're in Nairobi. This is now our second guest from the Silicon Savannah. Uh, Talk about, like, the decision that you made to to relocate from California to Nairobi and, like, just a little bit about your, your background leading up to today. Yeah, well, it's really exciting to hear that I am not the first guest from East Africa that you have had, you've had on this podcast. Um, I think it speaks to, to the exciting things that are happening in that market right now. So I started my career in Silicon Valley uh, over a decade ago. I was actually the CEO of an electric vehicle technology company. It was called Mission Motors. Uh, we were a fantastic company developing the highest performing electric motorcycle in the world. And, and that's really uh, where I got my feet wet and, and learned everything I needed to know about how to develop products, uh, how to develop high-tech products uh, was in that Silicon Valley atmosphere. And the great thing about the Silicon Valley environment is that we get to marvel every day at what technology can accomplish. We can dream of driverless cars, going to, going to Mars, flying taxis, all of these things every single day. But while we dream of this extraordinary future, the reality is that uh, this technological revolution seems incapable of solving some of these really intractable problems that we have uh, here on Earth. Uh, you know, for example, we're talking about going to Mars in the next decade, and yet in in a place like Sub-Saharan Africa, and not just Africa, India, Southeast Asia, there's over 600 million people who still don't have uh, electricity in their home. So that means they have to go home and light a kerosene lamp, technology from the 1800s, just in order to be able to light their home, study with their kids, um, and that's an everyday kind of problem. So I was motivated to go back and take everything I learned about technology and start to work on these problems. And what I found is that while technology hasn't solved these problems, it is already transforming the landscape where we can begin. And cellular and IoT is at the core of that. Africa, as an example, has leapfrogged landline phones and it's gone straight to cellular. In a place like Africa now, almost everyone, rich or poor, has a mobile phone. And that phone, even if it isn't a smartphone, it's it's way more than a device for making calls. It's their bank, it's their credit card, it's their ID, uh, it's their connection to the world. And that transformation of cellular coming into a low-income market, emerging market like Africa, it has transformed, it's created a whole new world for how we can start to address problems like poverty, like sustainable development, like climate adaptation, because climate change is affecting these equatorial countries more than any other place on earth. And for me in particular, I became fascinated with this transformation and how I could begin to apply my experience to solve this problem, especially of energy poverty. So that's what motivated me to get to Africa out of Silicon Valley. 
So one of the questions I had, it, 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 in especially in going through things with your pre-interview, it really struck me that a lot of the technical challenges that you're focused on and that you're solving for are uh, very – like they're things that we're also seeing at Barry in like ag tech, for example. So like one of them that comes to mind is engineering an IoT solution in an area where – connectivity is intermittent. You know, we see that a lot in the ag tech space. Can you talk about the journey, some of the challenges that you've faced and had to overcome to be able to solve for that in Africa and and like the connective tissue that would tie that back to rolling out like either industrial solutions or ag tech solutions in a developed market like the United States, but that might see similar issues to what you've had to face? My current role is I'm a, I'm a technology uh, venture capitalist. I'm a principal with Factory Ventures, and we are a technology VC uh, investing in startup companies, startup technology companies working in this space around agriculture, around energy, around mobility. However, before joining this fund, I was actually the chief technology officer at a company called Phoenix. And what we were doing at Phoenix, we're one of many companies now um, working on the African continent and similar to companies working in India, we were selling fully off-grid power systems to those that 600 million homes I mentioned, 600 million people I mentioned who don't have access to the grid. We were selling fully off-grid power systems. So a cellular panel, lithium-ion battery, the appliances that connected to it, to low-income homes in very hard-to-reach hard places in rural Africa. Now, Solar panels, lithium-ion batteries, these are expensive technologies. And the way that we made them affordable was by financing the sale. And that financing was made possible through cellular technology. So just imagine for a second, uh, men and women who own a, a one-acre farm, so these are low-income individuals, low-income households, they live over an hour away from their nearest town, and they don't have cars. So they're waiting for a bus or a motorcycle to come pick them up, take them to that town. So this is a really hard-to-reach place. And what our technology uh, combined with cellular enabled was it allowed us to sell them this solar panel and battery system over time. The customer would make a payment from their home using their mobile phone, using something called mobile money. And then uh, the off-grid energy system that we developed was cellular connected. So once they made a payment, we were able to apply that credit to their system over the air. And if they ever ran out of credit, uh, the system would automatically lock out, lock out. So we could create an incentive for payment in that way. And in this manner, we were actually able to create an effective financing scheme with manageable risk. And then the best part is that with each payment that these homes made, they were actually building equity in the system. So after one to two years, they owned their own source of energy. And this was a home that uh, up until they owned this energy system, they were using kerosene. Now, Cellular was key to all of this. Uh, through the IoT connection, we were able to monitor the performance of this system because if it ever broke, it was very difficult for us to get to this home and be able to repair it or replace it. We were able to monitor how customers were using it. Through the IoT connection, we were controlling access to this device. And we actually even managed, uh, we developed a technology to manage other devices through that IoT connection and then through a local RF network. So we were actually in the process of managing multiple devices, financing multiple devices. Now, the challenge we faced is in developing an IoT product, an effective IoT product for this market, we had to deal with three enormous challenges and I think these challenges are very similar to what you will see in the ag tech space in a place like the U.S. So number one, we had to assume unreliable connectivity and coverage. When you're working in rural areas, even with the massive amounts of money that are going into cellular networks across the world, and especially uh, in emerging markets, 
you still cannot count on coverage in all of these places. These are very difficult, very remote. And even when there is coverage, the coverage is going to be unreliable. So it will be intermittent. You cannot count on a persistent connection. I'll give you an example. When here we're developing a device where a customer makes a payment and they are counting on that device to be unlocked so that they can turn on the lights in their home. But what happens if they don't have a cell connection? All of a sudden, we can't send the signal to unlock that device. So we had customers picking up their device, some of our prototypes when we were testing this out. They were walking around rural Africa with a battery in their hand trying to find a cell signal. That is not something we first predicted and really taught us, okay, we are going to need to build in a backup here. We need to think about our user interface. We need to even think about our business model so that when a customer makes a payment, they're able to get power because that's the fundamental service we're providing. So that was one huge, huge area that we had to deal with. And this also created gaps in the data that we were collecting on how the device was performing. So as we were trying to build this map uh, and this picture of how the batteries especially were degrading, we had to deal with the fact that, okay, the cell connection for some of our homes might be out more hours of the day than it was on. And so how are we going to go through and build in data buffers, uh, package data in, a, uh, in an effective way so we can still build a complete picture despite the fact that connectivity is going in and out? So, so that unreliable connectivity is probably the biggest issue that we face and has to come into the product design when we're designing IoT for these markets. Second is we are dealing with connections that are low bandwidth and, and not just low bandwidth, but also expensive bandwidth. So when we were connected and collecting data from the system or transmitting data to the system, we had to think very carefully about every byte of data that we were transmitting. It all had to be intentional. And we even had to think about how we were packaging that data. So we were thinking, looking at very simple compression algorithms, compression schemes that we could implement on 32-bit microcontrollers. Not something that we predicted when we first started this project, but the only way in which we could get the system to ultimately work and function the way that we promised the customers. And then last and, and just as important and something that I know that the ag tech space faces quite frequently is limited power availability. So uh, remember, what we were selling was an off-grid power system. That means every ounce of battery capacity inside that device was ideally going to be put towards lighting the customer's home, charging their phones, running their television, or some other appliances. Every ounce of power that we used for the IoT connection was power that was not going to the customer in this uh, off-grid device. So, and, and the GSM modems that we were using were power-hungry. So uh, one of the other issues, even though we had unreliable connections, the other reason we couldn't rely on a persistent connection is we could not keep the GSM radio on the entire time. So how do you design these solutions to be incredibly power efficient so you're maximizing your battery capacity and your battery life, even if you're not selling the energy from the battery to a customer, uh, if you're using a battery in a device that needs to last days before it can be recharged, that has to become part of the design specification now and, and an important part of how you're configuring the technology. So those three key issues, you know, working in these in this context, unreliable connectivity, low bandwidth and expensive bandwidth, and then limited power available for your IoT connection. Uh, these are key to making a, an IoT solution work uh, within this context. So, Jit, you have uh, answered questions one through seven. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think Luke and I each had one curveball uh, to keep you on your toes. <laughs> Luke, go ahead. What, what was yours? I guess I was thinking, without obviously going into anything proprietary, but uh, for Gen 2 of your product, other than probably backpack straps, <laughs> they can walk around with their whole unit on their back. 
What other product evolution features or technologies did you uh, kind of push into that next generation to help solve some of these connectivity or power efficiency problems? Yeah, so on the connectivity front, the only solution that we could really, especially when you have something that needs to be immediate, right? So when a customer makes a payment, you want to make sure that they can use the energy or use the device, right? Like we were selling a power system, but this applies for any device uh, where a customer makes a payment, you're relying on an IoT connection for them to be able to get access to that device. What we found is that when you're in a low, uh, low connectivity environment, you have to have a backup. You have to have an alternative. Otherwise, your customer experience is just going to degrade. So in parallel to the uh, IoT solution, which the IoT lock and unlock was by far and away the most effective solution for us in developing this product, we also developed a more manual scheme where they could enter a code. We could send them uh, a code to their phone, and they could use a code to, to be able to lock and unlock their device. Newer solutions that I know a number of companies working in these environments are looking at is now you're starting to see an uptick in the number of smartphones uh, that are available in these markets. So most of our customers were still not using smartphones. They're just using regular old mobile phones. But with smartphones, what you now have is you have the opportunity to leverage the Bluetooth from the smartphone. And so can you actually create a connection to the user's phone uh, and then use that as an alternative means of transferring data when the device's IoT connection is not available? In every single product development that uh, I have been part of or now that I'm, I'm interacting with uh, as an investor, we are finding that uh, the teams are having to consider these alternatives in order to get over the, the uh, lack of reliability in the connection. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I, I had a question related to, I guess, what, what I would characterize as silver lining. So you're in a, a, a development environment that's got a lot of unique environmental challenges. The ones that aren't unique are are definitely, there's some difficult challenges. What silver linings have you uncovered in terms of like rolling out devices in Africa? Are there, are there things where you're like, wow, this is a, you know, for example, I, I know you've mentioned like the lack of landline technology. Nobody cares in the 2000s, you know, because they jumped right to mobile. So, you know, were, were you guys able to land on any, characteristics of the environment there that led to faster development, better solution, something like that? Um, I think the silver linings are, are they're, I would say, broad and, and macro. Number one is the amount of investment going into the overall cellular landscape uh, right now in, in emerging markets because the entire economy is now being built on the backbone of cellular. What you're seeing is very rapid expansion of coverage. You're seeing, I guess, a much faster expansion of, say, 3G availability. Yeah, we're still in really a 2G, 3G world for the most part. We're starting to see some 4G in, uh, in cities, but it's mainly 2G and 3G in, in rural areas. What you're starting to see is 3G is becoming more available much faster than we would have expected, especially in these rural areas. And so we're able to now start to leverage that as we design products and solutions. So that's one silver lining here is the amount of investment that's going in because the entire economy is now being built on the cellular backbone, especially because cellular is being used through this thing called mobile money. Mobile money, there are more mobile money accounts in uh, sub-Saharan Africa right now than there are traditional bank accounts by almost an order of magnitude. And so when you have this dependence on cellular, it means that the network is going to be getting better very, very quickly. So that's one silver lining. The other silver lining, I think, working in emerging markets is that you find customers are incredibly adaptable. So they're still customers. You, you need to really put them first and think about exactly what their needs are, make life as convenient for them as possible. But one of the things that you find is, and we found this with those customers who were taking our prototypes and walking around trying to find a cellular connection, 
for many of them, they were they were okay doing that. They were like, yeah, well, this is just what it's like to live in a rural area and live in uh, and and try to get the benefits of these connected technologies while knowing that we're not always going to have connectivity. So what you find is actually the customers are quite adaptable as well and and help you solve some of these problems uh, alongside. So I would say those are the two silver linings that we really learned from our experience. Shifting gears a little bit and and like talking about this idea of servicing or or de- let's say deploying assets in in hard to reach areas in remote areas here in the United States the forest service is like sort of the the OGs of deploying like assets in these impossible to reach you know so I'm coming to you live today from Bozeman Montana these forest service lookouts you know these cabins built on these tall peaks in really remote areas I, I'm always struck when I when we hike up there, you know, we barely make it, huff and puff and whatever, and you come to, and then there's a cabin there, you know, and somebody has schlepped up all of the the material. It really drives home the point that like servicing things in hard to reach areas is a really difficult problem. Yeah. How like can you talk about that, particularly through the lens of battery powered devices? You know, how are you guys thinking about that? What are some you know for folks out there listening today that are saying, hey, look, we're like this sounds like my problem. I, I've got a, a battery-powered device. It's going to be primarily deployed in, you know, difficult to access areas. What are some things that that they should be thinking about, or like problems that you guys have had to solve for along the way? Yeah. Well, Ryan, actually, I'll give you an example first. Not one that I have directly had to solve for, but I think it's just it's it's relevant to what you were just describing about Bozeman, Montana, and these lookouts. So one of the challenges that we have here, uh, we talked about connectivity and lack of connectivity. As these telecoms are expanding coverage, oftentimes they're expanding coverage using off-grid telecom towers. So imagine cell towers that are now no longer grid-powered. They have their own solar array. They've got their own battery. And these are really important assets. Everybody is relying on those assets to, to be available and up. And the power system that is powering those telecom towers it's now one of the largest markets that you see here in, in emerging markets for, for off-grid energy systems is actually powering these telecom towers. There's a big shift happening over to lithium-ion batteries. Now, lithium-ion batteries are incredible technology. They are lower lifetime cost overall. The biggest thing they do for these off-grid telecom towers in remote areas is they reduce how frequently the tower operators need to go and, and service the batteries. When they were dealing with lead-acid batteries, they were having to go all the time to service these batteries. They were dying after a few years. Lithium-ion batteries last a long time. But lithium-ion batteries, as we know, they're still somewhat of a fragile technology. The fact that now we're able to remotely monitor uh, control, even optimize how those batteries are being used. So every single day of use is building another data point in how that battery is performing. It's giving us a little bit more insight into how we should be managing that system, some of the choices that should be made, either at the design side or in terms of operations. Remote monitoring and control is completely changing that landscape. And we saw this on a much more micro scale with what we were doing. So one of the one of the great things with remote monitoring and control is we're now able to take a lithium ion battery system and sell hundreds of thousands of these into really difficult to reach places normally that would seem incredibly risky what happens when these start to fail left and right how do you tell if something is breaking how do you tell if actually somebody is actually just trying to break into the box 
to be able to avoid the payment mechanism. And so that way, basically tamper with the system, get free access to the energy. These were things where if we were not able to get data, remotely monitor these systems, and really build a picture of what's happening on a system-by-system basis and then for the entire population, this would be way too risky a proposition for us to be selling these types of lithium-ion battery systems on a one- to two-year loan uh, into these homes. So the whole business would not exist without remote monitoring and control. So I think it's really interesting how, on one hand, what you're describing, we have to solve it for the whole, for the connectivity piece itself by powering these telecom towers. And yet then the connectivity is also helping enable us do this, deploy these more fragile technologies. And I'm bringing up lithium-ion batteries, but you can make a similar argument for some of these remote sensing technologies that are now enabling ag tech or health tech, you know, health systems and health centers in really remote areas All of these fragile technologies, as a result of being able to monitor, control them remotely, we are able to deploy them with manageable risk, whereas before we were not. I'm curious in the, you know, I spent a lot of my life in battery systems, as you well know, but I'm curious in the United States, cell towers are typically or frequently now backed up with battery systems as well for the exact same reason that you're outlining. These are connected to the grid, but the grid goes down because so many people have ditched their pot, plain old telephone services in, in lieu of just having a connected cell device, that's now critical infrastructure. And so most of those are on battery backup. And I'm curious if there are kind of lessons learned going back and forth, if lessons learned from kind of things you've done in Africa or in these rural areas that are in emerging markets versus the rural areas in the U.S. versus, like, frankly, cell phone towers are not just in rural areas and they're still on battery backup. If there's like kind of an ecosystem where all those lessons are being learned and fed back and forth in and, and each way, and I think that applies probably to some of the other technologies that you're describing as well. I would say that the biggest lesson learned right now is the importance of data as we're starting to make this, these decisions and this transition. So the traditional, for, for example, these off-grid energy systems powering telecom towers or sometimes even other, you know, other applications, it's just the telecom towers happens to be one of the most prevalent. One of the things that's happening is the traditional system used, like I said, lead-acid batteries, especially if it was off-grid, used lead-acid batteries, even if it was backup in a market like the U.S. It was using typically lead-acid batteries in the off-grid context, it was using a diesel generator, and honestly, a lot of the power was mostly coming from the generator. Now we're starting to see that shift over to solar. Now we're starting to see the shift from lead acid to lithium ion. And yet a lot of the industry, as you know, has been very hesitant to make that shift. Lead acid is a well-known technology. It's really low upfront capital cost. Here you're coming in and saying, well, trust us, technology, this technology is going to last. It's going to save you money in the long term, but it's more expensive upfront. The more data that we have to show, yes, let's show you how this is performing. Let's show you how it's reducing your diesel consumption. Let's show you how it's easily going to last the lifetime. Plus, collecting that data is making the business case uh, because otherwise the business case was purely speculative. So I think that that was the biggest lesson learned is you have to have the data in order to get the buy-in from the industry. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. That's excellent. Yeah. So JIT, transitioning to you know what I would call like connective tissue. So you're you're making these venture investments. Um, you've had a you know pretty amazing career in tech up to this point. One of the things that I was sort of interested to hear you expand on a little bit is this idea of data use. I, I know that when you guys during your time at Mission Motors, that was like I mean you're it's an EV connected or it's an electric uh, motorcycle. That I think at one time had like 
a land speed record on a fairly prominent test track, like 153 miles an hour, if I'm oh, not mistaken. 162. 162. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, and what's nine miles per hour between friends? <laughs> what, can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons learned from then to now that, you know, have been disproportionately relevant, maybe in surprising ways? I was thinking about it even as, as Luke asked that previous question and, and going back and thinking about Mission Motors, Mission Motors was my first experience with a true IoT device. We, we weren't necessarily calling it that at that time because this was back in uh, uh, 2009, 2010. But the motorcycle that we built as a platform for developing our electric vehicle powertrain technology, as a platform for demonstrating what, what it is that we could do, one of the things that we did very early on was we made sure that that vehicle was going to be fully connected and we could monitor everything that was happening in fairly high resolution whenever our prototype motorcycles were, uh, were taken out for a drive. And whether that was driving on the track or whether that was just going for a ride around town to, to test a new algorithm or something like that. And we built an entire data platform in the background. So we were streaming that data live every time that mo uh, motorcycle turned on. We were streaming that data live. It was going into a web portal that we developed internally. And at the time, what I didn't realize is, yeah, that was my first experience with, with building an IoT device. And the power, I think for me, that fundamentally changed everything in my approach, even to product development. Seeing what we were able to learn and understand from that data pipeline, coming from that vehicle, being able to monitor it both in real time and then be able to analyze the data offline after the fact, it gave us so much insight into improving our powertrain technology, improving our batteries, our power electronics, our motors. I cannot imagine developing a product without that type of data anymore. And so for me, the biggest lesson learned here is just it feels to me like for any consumer electronics product, for any electronics product, B2B or B2C, some aspect of that data connection, that data pipeline has to be part of the product concept from the very beginning and especially important at the prototype stages where you're really trying to learn. And, and so ever since developing that data interface, uh, it is now a part of every single project I, I work on is how quickly can we get a data pipeline uh, together from whatever product we're making up into the cloud where we can now start to, to analyze and assess. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's like with most complex features, the earlier you think about it in the design requirements, prototype phase, uh, the better you can integrate that solution. And I think that that's a very valuable asset. It's also not an easy thing to like patch in later if you didn't think about it early on. So I think it does drive that need to be thinking about that very early in the design process. Yeah. Jet, I know, you know, when I was asking you in the pre-interview, what are some of these like, you know, in your opinion, connective tissue type moments where you're like, to solve problems here and now I'm pulling back from, you know, this previous time in my career. One thing you mentioned that I strongly subscribe to, and I think it's, it's like one of the great underrated elements of a successful company or project technology is just getting the the org design right like the technical organization expand on that and and what you've seen you know the good the, good, the bad the ugly yeah i think one of the things that i have seen now and that i feel like i've learned from from experience and, and from getting it wrong previously uh, is the importance of product thinking and product management very early in a product development process. And specifically, I think this relates more to startups. 
So at startups, uh, a lot of times entrepreneurs are, when we're founding a company, we are the initial product manager. We have an idea for a product or a technology and how we think it can change the world or transform a market. Uh, and so we are basically getting started as product managers, just trying to get that initial idea uh, a little bit of oxygen in order to see if it can work and, and the kind of impact it can have. But then the moment that that product starts to move forward, starts to gain a little bit of traction, uh, and especially as entrepreneurs and executives, we need to move to broader priorities, right? Building an organization, raising money especially. I think it's really important that we recognize we need that product function in order for the overall product development organization to thrive. I think too often there's a focus explicitly on engineering and just getting in really talented engineers but somebody needs to be thinking about, okay, how is this actually relating to the customer? How are we making decisions about this product that really are ultimately going to affect the customer? And so one of the things for companies in our portfolio, companies that I work with and advise, I encourage them to pull in the product management function into their uh, product development teams earlier. And when they do that, I have found in general that those product development teams are much more successful in the first iteration of their product being much closer to uh, what is going to really start to scale in the market uh, rather than re requiring two to three iterations before they're able to get there. So I think in terms of that organizational design, I think it's that product management piece that's quite often missing and that I always encourage people to prioritize a lot, uh, a lot earlier beyond just really talented engineers, which of course you also need. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Uh, all right. So we're we're moving to to close. Just a couple of uh, quick questions for you. You know, you've seen a lot in your career, batteries to bandwidth, cell service, solar. As you look at the landscape right now, what thing or company do you think is super cool, but that nobody's talking about yet? Oh, <laughs> um, what thing or company is super cool? that uh, people aren't talking about yet. Well, I, I'm going to have to put this in, uh, you know, in, in the context of the market in which I work, unfortunately. Sure. So living in East Africa, I think sometimes we're not as well-versed. I am not as well-versed in what's happening in, in Silicon Valley. I'm sure there's incredibly cool things happening uh, in Silicon Valley right now. Um, I will say that the thing that's very, really cool happening within our, in emerging markets right now is... Uh, over the last decade, we've seen a really big transition to distributed energy systems and new ways of bringing the, making those available, inclusive, and accessible. The next big shift that's happening now is in electric mobility. In places like Africa and places like India, especially electric mobility has already taken off. And what you're seeing now is electric mobility in places like Africa. And the really cool thing, the reason that I think it's particularly cool is we are seeing business models that were tried in the US uh, and didn't quite work. So in particular, I'll just give you an example of one story. Uh, back in the US in, uh, you know, sometime in the, I want to say 2008 to 2012 period, there was a company called Project Better Place that was trying to do battery swapping for electric cars. Uh, actually raised, I think the company raised almost a billion dollars and had a really big project working in Israel but ultimately it didn't fly for, for any number of reasons, it didn't fly. And, uh, and in general, I think we've seen most companies in the electric car space in the US move away from battery swapping. And yet battery swapping is now seeing a resurgence in a place like East Africa, but not for cars, actually for motorcycles. In East Africa, one of the most common modes of transportation 
uh, is actually motorcycle taxis. So after buses, motorcycle taxis are a really common way for people to get around, sometimes with as many as three to five people on the back of the motorcycle behind the, uh, behind the driver, carrying all their groceries and everything else. It's, pretty, it's a pretty remarkable sight to see, something you've probably seen from photos of Vietnam and Southeast Asia as well. The cool thing is uh, there are now a number of companies working in East Africa, including one of our companies, Ampersand, in Rwanda, that what they're doing is they're taking an electric motorcycle with a swappable battery. They're selling the motorcycle without the battery to a motorcycle taxi driver. And then these taxi drivers pull in to a swap station. And in 60 seconds, they swap out the battery, pay a small fee, and then go on their way. And in the process, basically, what you have now is an electric mobility company that basically uh, requires no behavior change on the part of these taxi drivers and could result in the complete transformation of the motorcycle taxi industry in a market like East Africa. So I, my, the reason I bring this up is I don't think a business like this is being talked about in the U.S., and yet it is incredibly cool. It's taking a concept that was first originated uh, over a decade ago in the U.S., and it's going to have transformative impact in, in emerging markets. So that's the one that I would bring up and, and say I'm most excited about. Uh, so for for longtime EV enthusiasts like me that have been watching the space, I want to say Project Better Place. Is that the name of the the Israeli startup that went really heavy on yeah. swap for the 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 car space? Totally. Shy Agassi. And and then Luke, you had a follow-up comment, I think. No, I was just going to say that the market, the idea that you're outlining now. Uh, so I was at Uber before I joined Barry and uh, as part of the jump program there, which ultimately got sold off, there are, and I know Panasonic's working on this with people in Taiwan, but they're doing a lot of that for scooters and for uh, any bikes and things like that, where they're looking to set up kiosks and that sort of thing. We can go and swap it out and get credit actually for bringing it. If it's low to get it charged up at the kiosk. Cause that's a, that is a thing that's starting to make, uh, make its way through certainly in Taiwan and also uh, a bit in the U S as well. All right, Jit, last question. You you might have uh, missed this, but here in in the U.S., uh, Saturday night, uh, late night television viewers retreated to Elon Musk's debut, hosting a Saturday Night Live. Um, <laughs> it's very in vogue to say that SNL isn't funny anymore. I think we're now twenty years into that being what people say every time. Other than Will Ferrell and Chris Farley, in your opinion, who's the funniest person that's ever been on Saturday Night Live? Oh man. Um, funniest person who's ever been on set, and and I can't and it can't be Will Ferrell or Chris Farley. <laughs> no, I mean it's uh, this is uh, like I, I'm saying who's the best basketball player, but you can't say Jordan or LeBron. You know, ooh. like those are the two obvious ones: Will Ferrell, Chris Farley, off the table. Funniest SNL cast member of all time. Well, uh, I, I mean, I don't know, Ryan. This might be a little provocative. Um, and, and politically incorrect or politically very correct. But for me, over the last four years, it was definitely Alec Baldwin. Uh, and I will, uh, I will leave it at that. So as uh, <laughs> I'll let you decide if you want to edit that one out. <laughs> no, I love it. We'll make that's That's a great one. And, and bonus points for choosing a host, not uh, yeah. so I don't think he was ever, ever cast. Guest star. He was a guest star. Anyway. Yeah, I think he's hosted more than anyone else. Okay, Jit, thank you. For those that, that want to keep up with you and your journey, where can folks follow along? Yeah, the best place is to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look up Jit Bhattacharya. Uh, I should be fairly easy to find. And, and thanks again, Ryan, for having me. 
Cool. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, All right, folks, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the internet. You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com. You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? Send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.